0: Look, you can't control the number of hours you have in the day. All you can do is try to focus as much of your energy as possible on the people and the projects that really matter to you.
1: Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britton Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is... I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer: make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In today's episode, we're chatting with organizational psychologist Adam Grant. Adam is a Wharton professor, author of four New York Times best-selling books, host of the chart-topping podcast Work Life, and his TED Talks have been viewed more than 20 million times. Adam can teach us about so many things, but my biggest question at the moment is something that is super important right now. How to stay productive while managing anxiety. I have to say, you know, first of all, we want to say we're thinking of everyone affected by this pandemic, and we definitely want to thank all the people on the front lines, the healthcare workers, the people working at grocery stores and pharmacies, and all of you who are listening. This isn't easy for anyone, regardless of your circumstances, and we just want to shed a little light today on how we can maybe do it a tiny bit better, or stop putting pressure on ourselves, or I don't know. We're just here to talk about it. Okay, Ange, so we've been working from home, each with two kids, for about a month now.
2: Uh, how are you holding up? I mean, I'm pretty tired. I definitely have that feeling that I've seen a lot of people have where you sort of have four jobs that you're doing okay at, right? When you think you've done really well at something, another one sort of drops or has an epic fail. Yeah, I think we can all agree with that. We both are in some of the luckiest situations, you know, where... At home with our kids, we're able to work remotely, but it's still really crazy to manage it all. Exactly. And what's been the hardest part about working from home for you? I think constantly switching between things and feeling like I can't be present in anything. What about you? You know, I think for me, I have gotten so good at
1: optimizing my workspace in the office. So I have my ergonomic chair, my big monitor, it's quiet, I've got my headphones, you know, I've been spending years making it perfect for me to do work in a highly productive way. And now I have no home desk, it's my dining table, I have no big monitor, my children are interrupting me every five to 10 minutes. It's just like, everything is crazy and, and it really has been dragging on my productivity.
2: Totally. I just turned a bench that we use for coats and stuff into a desk by stacking it on a bunch of (laughs) shoeboxes. Ergonomic chair. No, it's a dining chair. <laughs> I feel like
1: chiropractors are going to make a lot of money after this is over because all of our backs are going to be so bad.
2: <laughs> it's true. I do have a basket underneath that I stuffed with pillows to act as a footrest, so I get, like, some 90-degree angles happening. <laughs> it's, so it's so bad. I'm in my dining chair at my dining table. It's so bad. Uh.
1: All right. And with that, I think we can toss it over to our guest today, Adam Grant, who is going to teach us all about how to be maybe more productive while we're managing our anxiety. I don't know. We'll see what he says. Hey, Adam, welcome to Teach Me Something New.
0: Thank you. It's good to hear you, Britt.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So we're living in a crazy time right now. How has your life changed in the last month and how are you managing it?
0: I feel very lucky that my life has probably changed less than most people's, largely because I've been working from home for, I don't know, at least 15 years, maybe closer to 20. And so I'm used to only going to work when I teach or when I travel. And so those two parts of my job, obviously, are not on the table right now. Um, But as far as my day-to-day writing and podcasting life and research life as well, it's pretty much the same. How about
1: you? It's been a little crazy. Um, Ange and I both have two kids under age five. So she has two girls. I have two boys. You have three kids. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we have three kids, two girls and a boy. And they're home. So that part of my, my life outside of work has changed a lot.
1: Yeah. Do they interrupt you while you're working?
0: Sometimes. But they're also, they're doing online learning throughout the day. So they're they're pretty focused. But I, I do feel like at some level, we've all become BBC dad. And you may you may see a kindergartner start to waltz in here and dance in the background. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Are you facing a lot of interruptions?
1: Yes. Uh, I think because our kids are so young that they can't really focus too much on anything for more than 15 or 20 minutes. And they can't read or follow along on, you know, online learning programs. So it has to be parent-guided. And that's been pretty disruptive for our work lives. And Ange has figured out how to make a schedule with her husband to turn on and off. My husband doesn't believe in schedules, so... (laughs) (laughs) Very go-with-the-flow kind of guy, so it's just been a little bit different for me,
2: but... (laughs) Our approach has been, we basically each do a morning shift and an afternoon shift with the kids, and they seem to understand that the guest room or the closet is the office now. (laughs)
0: Nice. I, I've always wanted to, to work out of a place where my clothes hang. It's it's a <laughs> dream. No.
2: I mean it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I feel doubly lucky then because my wife, Allison, uh, she used to be a nurse practitioner and then she stayed home for about a decade with our kids and now she's a writer. So she has even more flexibility than I do. And she's been just doing an amazing job managing three different kids' school schedules. You know, we don't we don't go as many places as we used to, but we're both introverts. So we, we didn't go that many <laughs> places anyway.
1: You guys prepared really well for this. Um, <laughs> so Adam, before we get into all of the productivity and anxiety stuff, can you explain to us what an organizational psychologist actually does I can
0: try I definitely cannot organize your closet Uh, (laughs) so good luck with that Uh, I probably can't cure your OCD either Uh, organizational psychology is basically about trying to make work better and so I spend some of my time studying how we can make jobs more meaningful and motivating Uh, I've spent a lot of time working with teams on building more collaborative and generous cultures I've tried to help organizations become more creative and innovative. So basically, if if you've ever wanted to make work suck a little bit less, that's what organizational psychologists are all about.
1: And most people don't actually love their work, right? Isn't the percentage that like more than 50% of people aren't finding meaning in their jobs?
0: That seems to be true in many surveys, uh, and you know, I think I think that's probably a good thing. Actually, I think loving your job might be dangerous. It's often said that no matter how much you love your job, your job cannot love you back. And so there's a little bit of a danger of of unrequited love uh, if you're too passionate. But in all seriousness, there's some recent evidence that people who are extremely passionate about their jobs are more likely to get exploited and taken advantage of uh, because people will say, whoa, you know, Britt, you're, you're so passionate. Here are a bunch of extra tasks to do, and we know you're going to be really excited about them. And there seems to be a little bit of a tax on passion, which I think is grossly unfair.
1: So the appropriate way to love your job is to be somewhere in the middle. You don't hate it. You don't love it. It's just okay.
0: I think it's great to find it extremely enjoyable and interesting and meaningful, but you probably (laughs) don't want to have a deep sense of... Well, actually, it depends a little bit on what kind of passion we're talking about, too. There's a distinction between what are called harmonious and obsessive passion. So obsessive passion is what you think about when you think about workaholics, where they feel guilty when they're not working. It becomes compulsive. It's a source of stress. And then harmonious passion is saying, you know what, I really enjoy my work because I'm intrinsically motivated. Uh, I think it's exciting. I think it's worthwhile. And I'm, I'm happy to do it. And I think that's a pretty good place to be. And I, I, I hope I spend most of my work time that way, but it never hits all of my time.
1: Okay, let's switch gears. Let's talk about productivity. So pre-COVID, What would you usually advise people about how to be more productive at work? And and then how has that changed now that so many of us are working remotely?
0: Oh, well, I'm sorry. I'm trying to tell my kindergartner I will answer his question after we're done. Yeah, so I think that when most people think about productivity, they think about time management. And they say, okay, you know, I need to do a better job making sure that I squeeze every productive moment out of the day that I can. I don't know about you but my experience of time management has been when i do that i just become more painfully aware of all the hours i'm wasting and it's kind of depressing and now not only am i bad at time management i'm now beating myself up for being bad at time management and it becomes a vicious cycle of depression and rumination and guilt and self-loathing and you know eventually I, i try to stop what i think works much better is attention management which is to say look you can't control the number of hours you have in the day all you can do is try to focus as much of your energy as possible on the people and the projects that really matter to you. And so when I when I break down a day to try to be productive, the first thing I want to do is try to figure out what not what what amount of time a project is going to take, but what the right timing of that project is. So when should I focus my attention on it? I used to for example as a morning person, do all my creative work in the morning because I thought okay, that's when I'm most alert. And then I read a bunch of research showing that as a morning person, I'm more likely to be creative in the evening because that's when I'm a little bit foggier. I'm less likely to think in an overly structured and linear way and more likely to make some unexpected leaps. And so now I'll adjust the timing on my schedule and maybe spend half an hour at night brainstorming about new ideas. If you're an evening person, you want to flip that. (laughs) Do some of your creative work when you're groggy. Um, And that would just be an example of something you could do that really doesn't allow you to get any more hours than the day, but it probably allows you to focus more productively during the hours when you are working.
2: I totally agree. I swear I've actually been more productive and prolific in terms of content creation, just because I'm like, I got to get it all done right now. So what advice do you have for employed people with kids, employed people without kids, people who temporarily don't have work in terms of managing all that time and space at home and in one place right now?
0: I think the first thing I would say is we should all lower our standards and expectations. I, I know a lot of people who as this crisis hit said, "Okay, I don't have to commute anymore. I don't have to be interrupted constantly by my colleagues coming into my office or stopping by my desk." And you know, I have a lot more flexibility and so I'm going to I'm just going to have an epic month or two or three of productivity. And then all of a sudden they discover they're sitting on Zoom calls all day long and they're being interrupted every 4 minutes by someone in their house. And I think that's that's just a reality of the current situation. And instead of expecting to you know to be more productive, then we should we should say you know what I am probably going to get less done each week than I would have in the past. And then if we fall behind, we're not that disappointed in ourselves, and we can stay motivated the next week. If you know if we end up and it sounds like you're in this incredible position where you have exceeded your expectations, that's a pleasant surprise. As opposed to just saying, all right, I got as much done as I was hoping to. This is really not meaningful at all. Nothing to celebrate. So I think just just setting realistic expectations is, is probably the first step. And then I guess the other thing I would, I would recommend to anybody who's trying to figure out what to do with their time is to say, this is a perfect time to use yourself as a guinea pig, a human guinea pig. Uh, I think many of us get stuck in routines that we never bothered to question. Uh, There's a there's a fun study that happened in London years ago where I think the tube, the train system shut down and a lot of people or at least parts of it went on strike. And so a lot of people couldn't take their usual route to work and they had to find another way. And once the strike was over, something like a quarter or a third of those people ended up continuing with the new route. And many of them, what's to me amazing about the study is that many of them had been taking a less efficient route for 15 years to work. And only when they were forced to did they try something new. And I'd say this crisis is a moment where we're, we're forced to do something different. But we shouldn't just try one way of working. Uh, whether it's adjusting the time when you work, whether you think about your task sequencing. This is something I've studied with a, a former doctoral student, Jihei Shin. We found that if you're doing your most interesting task right now, and then you follow it with your least interesting task, your performance on that boring task is going to suffer because it creates an even bigger contrast between the task that was exciting and now this is just soul-crushing to have to read contracts or do expense reports. Uh, not that those are my least favorite tasks or anything, <laughs> <laughs> but what we found is it's it's better to have a tapering period where after you do a a, a project that you're really passionate about, before you go to something extremely boring, you should have something moderately interesting in between. Uh, and that, that reduces the contrast and the pain of then having to do something dull. And those kinds of experiments, you know, I, we, we ended up doing that research largely because we had both experienced it personally and thought, okay, why don't we gather some data and run some experiments and, and see if this is true? Um, I think those kinds of experiments ought to be run, and we now have the freedom and the time to do them. So I would say at least once a week, you start out Monday and say, I'm going to make one big adjustment to my work routine. Maybe I'm going to work out before work as opposed to after work. Maybe I'm going to take two meal breaks instead of one, right? can be very small adjustments, but try those out and figure out where they help and where they hurt.
1: Adam, from your data, does working remotely cause an increase or decrease in collaboration? And, and before you answer that, can you explain why collaboration is so important?
0: I think collaboration is important for three reasons. The first one is that the people we collaborate with often bring complementary knowledge and skills. And so they essentially are able to make us smarter. Uh, I think the, the second reason is just sheer horsepower, right? You can only do so much work. You have other people with you, you can create more. And then probably the third benefit of collaboration is is enjoyment. Uh, a lot of people find that it's much more fun to work on something boring with people that you like or to work on something that's daunting with people who have confidence that you can pull off whatever this seemingly impossible goal might be. And so when I think about collaboration in the context of remote work, I'd say a few things. The first one is there are empirical benefits of working remotely. Uh, There was a study Nick Bloom, an economist did. Uh, He studied a call center where people were randomly assigned to work from home as opposed to in the office. And he found that on average, productivity went up by about 13%. And people were half as likely to quit over the next six months. And you could ask, why is that? And I think one explanation is people just save time. They didn't have to necessarily get dressed for work. They didn't have to commute. We're experiencing a lot of that now. But secondly, I think, and more importantly, the chance to work from home was a huge signal of trust from their employer. And especially in a call center, which is often very routinized and micromanaged work, um, leaders were sending a message, look, we have faith that you're going to do a great job. We know you're responsible. We're willing to give you autonomy and freedom. And that tended to get reciprocated with a lot of loyalty. And so employees were able, you know, in a lot of situations, they would work harder or they would be more motivated than they would have been before. And then I think the last benefit of of that working from home system is that there was a lot more customization. People were able to work in the places and times and ways that were productive for them. And so I think this is all potentially good news. I think when it comes to then, what does this mean for collaboration? The best data I can think of are probably from Gajendran and Harrison. It's a meta-analysis, a study of studies, where they look at the effects of teleworking on satisfaction and performance. And they find that as long as you're in the office, about three to three and a half days a week, there's no cost whatsoever to the amount of work that you get done or or how well you work. And so that leads me to think, if we're working independently one or two days a week, Uh, As long as we're, you know, we're in touch with our colleagues on a regular basis in between, uh, we're actually probably okay. Now, of course, that's going to vary by the type of work. The more interdependent you are, the more you have to collaborate to get your work done, probably the more this is going to disrupt your life and the quality of your work. Uh, But I don't think we should just inherently assume that because they're working remotely, everyone's going to collaborate worse.
1: Well, I guess just to trail on that, do you think that this is going to stick? Do you think that especially large technology organizations, for instance, where you can do remote work fairly easily, will allow for a three-day office work week and a two-day home work week?
0: I hope so. I, I really hope that, especially in knowledge work uh, and in some aspects of service work, it's it's a lot harder in manufacturing, right? But in the, the domains where it's possible, yeah, I think that in a lot of organizations, people are going to realize, huh, you know, there are aspects of this that I really liked, And it worked well. And there are going to be leaders who see, huh, the people who work with me are just as productive as as they were before. And some of them were more productive. Maybe we should keep running this experiment. But I think to your point, Brett, the key is to, to alternate being in the office and not being in the office. Uh, There's some work by Ethan Bernstein and his colleagues which shows that if you're working alone, you will have more great ideas than groups do. Individuals working independently are less prone to groupthink. They're less likely to conform. They're more likely to think outside the box. But groups together have more good ideas than individuals do because you get the wisdom of crowds. And you can start to weed out the really horrible ideas, which sometimes we're the worst judges of our own ideas. And so the the thought there is intermittent collaboration, having, you know, some time to work separately, some time with other people is probably the way you want to go. And I think we could extend that not just to how we manage our workday, but also how we manage our work week.
2: Obviously, everyone is working over Zoom and video chat, and it sounds like you've been doing that for a while. What are the upsides and downsides to it? What tips do you have for working more effectively? remotely with others?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the first thing, Ange, is that we need to be mindful of individual differences here. So introverts and extroverts have very different preferences when it comes to stimulation. And when we think about stimulation, we normally think about social interaction, but it also applies to loud sounds, bright lights, and especially eye contact. Uh, One of the ways you can spot an introvert is if you stare them right in the eyes. Introverts will, will often feel like they're staring into the sun. (laughs) <laughs> and feel and like, okay, I, I, I need to back up here uh, and, and reset a little bit. Uh, whereas extroverts tend to find eye contact much more energizing uh, and the, the intensity is not the same for them. And one of the things I've noticed as an introvert is I find being on video calls exhausting. But sitting on audio calls doesn't drain my energy at all. And so sometimes what I'll do is I'll join a video call and ask if we can switch to audio. Other times I'll just turn off my camera and turn off other people's cameras and listen. Uh, That also has the benefit of sometimes making it possible to work out while I'm on a call, which is really great. Uh, I only do that when I don't have to talk much. But I think we should be very mindful of those kinds of preferences. So that would be my first thought.
1: I agree with you. I like to call myself an extroverted introvert. So if I need to push it, I will. I'll obviously host podcasts and go on television. But I totally prefer audio calls to video calls. I mean, I'm also not getting dressed or wearing makeup these days. Uh, (laughs) That's another reason. This is a tangent, but it's an interesting time for women when vanity, you know, was at an all-time high, you know. um, fake tanning, makeup, hair dye, like nails, all the things. You can't do that right now. You've just got to be raw, natural you. And I'm finding that a lot of my female friends are loving that and embracing it and (laughs) even showing that off on Zoom to their work colleagues in times when they would have never not worn makeup before. So there's kind of a unique humanness that's coming out, even as much as they might feel introverted or extroverted to be on that video chat.
0: This, this is one of my favorite things that, you know, has been in some ways a silver lining as part of the crisis. Uh, I feel like for years, one of the biggest competitive disadvantages that women have faced at work is just the amount of prep time that they do on hair and makeup and clothes. Which, as a bald guy, I, I will often leave my house five minutes after I've I've gotten out of bed, right? It's 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 That's just grossly unfair. And so I think those differences have—I I don't think they've gone away. Uh, but they seem to have, have probably dissipated a little bit uh, in the past few weeks, which which seems like a step in the right direction. Do you think that'll stick, though? Because I worry we're going to go back to work, and all of a sudden people are going to go right back to their old routines.
1: You know, it's funny because I did this whole give it a week experiment. I don't know if you followed that at all on Instagram. I tried one new thing a week for an entire year. It's all archived on my Instagram profile. But I did no makeup for a week, which felt really uncomfortable and hard every day. I was even in photo shoots and stuff without makeup. And then I came back to normal, but it, but I sort of landed somewhere in between. So I, I would, you know, just do like a half set of makeup that I usually did. <laughs> and I didn't care as much. You know, I really let my guard down. So I'm I'm projecting that women will land somewhere in between. Um, they'll probably put on mascara, but maybe they don't need foundation. You know, like maybe they'll, they'll brush their hair, but it won't be like curled. You know, and so I think we're all getting a little bit more comfortable with who we actually are.
2: So we've seen a lot of people taking up new creative skills. Um, There's this pressure to be productive right now. What's your take on exploring new hobbies? Is it a good time to do it? Is it stressful? What's sort of the balance there?
0: I think if there's a new hobby you're excited to pick up and you feel like you can carve out the time to do it, great. Great if you can maybe even choose a hobby that other people in your household or your family are interested in if you know if you're not alone that might it might make it a little bit less of a distraction maybe it becomes a little bit more likely to stick i think the the main thing i would say on this is that hobbies don't necessarily detract from work uh, if if you look at the research on people who are very passionate about their hobbies uh, it suggests that if anything it contributes positively to their energy and their performance on the job uh, as opposed to sapping you know energy and that's even true if you're a marathon runner i used to think you know if you're going to if you're going to go out and run for 3 4 hours every weekend that you know that would that would exhaust you or you know at some point that would mean well you know that's time you could have been recharging for work it doesn't work that way when when people have a hobby that they they really enjoy uh, that that does seem to replenish them as opposed to deplete them and so uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it but back to the pressure point i would also say if it becomes yet another item on your to-do list then i would probably not want to go that route um, and Helen Peterson, uh, BuzzFeed writer, had a great way of describing this uh, when I talked to her on my podcast. She said that one of the ways you know you're, you're starting to take on too much and maybe even feeling burned out is that everything in your life flattens into one long to-do list. Uh, even the things that weren't on your to-do list. And so I wouldn't want to see that happen.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting segue into anxiety, which is an emotion I think many people are feeling right now. Uh, It was already skyrocketing before the virus. And now even people who quote unquote would not call themselves anxious, like me, for instance, have been dealing with like a large range of emotions. I myself have been waking up in the middle of the night. I've been um, sometimes feeling like I could really work and be productive. And other times my emotional state seems too fragile to even try to do anything productive- what is anxiety first of all can and can we all feel it if we don't have a medical diagnosis
0: <laughs> yeah of course uh, i mean i think anxiety is widely regarded as one of the only universal emotions that humans experience and actually it's not even limited to humans right you can see animals showing it too uh, so if if you want to push a psychologist who specializes in emotion on this you'd hear that anxiety is a feeling of uh, of being nervous, and it's a feeling that has a physiological basis in uncertainty. Uh, So in order to be anxious, you have to not know what's going to happen. If you know for sure what's going to happen, that's no longer anxiety. That might be dread
2: that you're feeling.
0: So... (laughs) Uh, That's that's the first thing is uncertainty is kind of the defining quality of, of anxiety. And usually the anxiety comes into play as the flip side of excitement. So excitement is the positive emotion associated with uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen in the future, but you're looking forward to something good. Anxiety is the unpleasant side of that. And I think that goes to one of the first ways that you can manage anxiety is to say, look, because it involves uncertainty, sometimes you can have an easier time trying to convert your anxiety into excitement than trying to calm down. Uh, We have a former doctoral student, Allison Wood Brooks, who studied this. She did these hilarious experiments where, in some cases, she had people take math tests, uh, which is a a pretty nerve-wracking experience for a lot of people, especially in the US. In other cases, she had them sing karaoke. I think in both cases, they had to do it in front of either a judgmental audience or be recorded doing it. So people are not comfortable, and their anxiety spikes. And she randomly assigns them to do different things before they take the math test or have to sing karaoke. And one thing she does is she has them just try to calm themselves down, which over 90% of people think is the best thing to do. And that doesn't work because anxiety is an an activated emotion. It's high intensity. You can't just turn it off, right? It's it's like trying to slam on your brakes when you're going 100 miles an hour. You're going to skid. What worked much better is instead of saying, okay, I'm calm or I'm relaxed, just telling themselves I'm excited. And they were able to then take that intense emotion, turn it into a different intense emotion and say, you know what? OK, I might totally bomb karaoke, but it might be kind of fun, too. And maybe this will go OK. Maybe I'll ace the math test and maybe I won't. And so I think finding something to look forward to, right, some, some silver lining, some piece of potential good news is one of the first things that you do when you're feeling anxious.
1: How would you reckon that with a global <laughs> pandemic?
0: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, my my way of doing that, Brit, has been to take FOMO. So a lot of people are are experiencing, anxi- excuse me, experiencing anxiety around all the things that they're missing out on. Uh, you know, whether it's school or work or sporting events or time with friends and family, uh, there's a lot being missed. And I think that in this case, we can turn FOMO into what in Silicon Valley you would often call JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. I think this is such a great concept. We don't just miss out on things that are that are really exciting. We also miss out on things that we're thrilled to not have to do. So we talked about some of them earlier, right? It's great that I don't have to change out of sweatpants. I love that I don't have to commute to work any day, as opposed to just some days. Um, I'm also thrilled that I don't have to have awkward interactions with strangers, uh, especially on airplanes. <laughs> I've also, I think, I've had fewer awkward interactions with people I know too. So those are those are all things that are on my Jomo list. And, you know, I don't know that they fully qualify as... I I certainly wouldn't want anyone to say, I'm excited that there's a pandemic, right? It's horrible. This is an awful situation we're all in. But we can still find things to be excited about that are built into that situation. For me, some of that is also I have more family time and more flex time than I did before. And, you know, I think those those are good things in some ways.
2: So in terms of how anxiety impacts work... You know, what recommendations do you have for handling anxiety when you're out of work? Because we've talked a lot about having too much on your to-do list, but what if you have too little?
0: And I think that's that's one of the hardest questions to answer right now, in large part because unemployment has skyrocketed. And so a lot of people that are looking for jobs that don't exist right now. I don't have any easy answers to that. My hope from studying other kinds of crises is that the economy will rebound much faster than it did, for example, after the financial crisis, uh, when when there was a, a structural reason for people to be out of work as opposed to, well, it's hard for a lot of us to work when we can't leave the house or when we can't leave our yards. So I think one of the best things to do in terms of just managing the anxiety while you're in limbo or while you're trying to keep yourself motivated to apply for jobs is to to take a page out of Jamie Pennebaker's playbook. Jamie is uh, one of my favorite psychologists. He spent his career studying the act of journaling, which for him is just one way of expressing your thoughts. And what he's shown is that when you keep a journal about some of your most stressful or traumatic experiences, initially for often a day or a week, sometimes up to two weeks, your anxiety and stress will intensify because it's unpleasant to engage with those horrible feelings. But then afterward, over the next six months, you become less stressed. And in one of his experiments, after about 100 engineers were uh, were laid off, those who were randomly assigned to keep journals about what the layoff felt like were actually more likely to get reemployed. They got reemployed faster, and they were more likely to keep their jobs as well. And there's something about engaging with your emotions and being able to form a coherent story about them that just makes it easier to process them. And I don't know that everybody's you know preferred way of doing that is journaling. In some of Jamie's research, uh, he actually had people just record voice memos, and he found that the benefits of doing that were the same as writing. Um the key was you had to describe the thoughts and the feelings that you have, and you had to form some kind of narrative around them where you can make sense of, you know, if even if this didn't happen for a good reason, I'm going to find a reason to make good of it. And that that seems to be a huge help. So I guess I would start there with with some mechanism of of just trying to capture what you're feeling.
2: That's super interesting. It's actually, so I have this one line a day that I've had since, like a journal that I had since my first daughter was born. And I've written in it every day except for the last three and a half weeks. Oh,
0: literally. time and to restart of, maybe.
2: Exactly. Part of it is like it's it feels like a to-do. And then I'm also like, is this real? Like I don't want to recognize it in a way.
0: Yeah, and I'm I wouldn't say that that's that's inherently a problem. So there, there's a lot of work. I know many people have been talking about how one emotion that that many people worldwide are feeling right now is grief around the loss of of normalcy as opposed to just the loss of life uh, that you know our, our lives as we know it have, have been upended. And I think when it comes to grief work, the idea of actively processing whatever grief you're feeling The evidence is very inconclusive. Uh, What it suggests is that some people really benefit from it and other people are totally fine distracting themselves and they don't have to do the hard work of really, you know, thinking about, well, what am I feeling and why and how am I going to move past this? Uh, I think for other kinds of traumatic events, the evidence is more consistent that writing is, is helpful for most people. But when it comes to, you know, to intense grief, I don't think that there's a right answer or a one-size-fits-all solution. This is another case where you can only learn from your own experience, right? Maybe you try journaling for a day or two, even if it's the one line, and and say, how does this feel? And if it feels horrible consistently, I probably wouldn't do it.
1: (laughs) Give it a week, Ange. Come on. All right. All right. I'll bring it back. How has all of this changed, quote unquote, meaning in our work? Like, how will this impact what we feel is a meaningful job now and in the future?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I think there's a there's a whole sector where people are going to find the work much more meaningful than they did in the past. Uh, I think, you know, grocery stores are the easiest example to think of. Uh, but I think a lot of people who are responsible for daily goods and services, for infrastructure, uh, for you know for trash and recycling, as you start to think about many of the jobs that that make our lives possible and easier the way we live them, that we took for granted before. I think my hope is that we're all going to take those jobs less for granted now and that people who do those jobs are going to have a heightened sense of purpose in them. And my hope is that, that people will say, okay, this is something that, you know, that really matters in the world. And I know that, you know, if I'm working in a grocery store, everything I do day to day probably doesn't change anyone's life. But the fact that this job exists, if it didn't, I know how much worse off people would be. And that's my favorite way actually to to test and, uh, and well, actually I'd say that's my favorite way to gauge how meaningful your job is, but also to find more meaning in it is to ask who would be worse off if my job didn't exist. Hmm. And the people that you think of when you answer that question are the reason that your work matters.
2: Hmm.
1: I love that. That hits home with me for sure. Okay. I know we're short on time. We're going to play a wrap up game. <laughs> so Bring it on. yeah, I'm going li- to I'm going to list some work habits. And Adam, and then and you and I can trade off. Adam, mm-hmm. you tell us if they're helpful or harmful, and then how to do each thing better.
0: How many sentences do you want?
1: <laughs> we can keep <laughs> it short. Okay. Okay. Responding to
2: emails right away.
0: Do it. Touch it once is more efficient.
2: Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Taking a fifteen-minute break for social media.
0: Depends what you're taking a break from.
2: Mm-hmm. Meta. To-do list.
0: Yeah, you should have a to-do list, but you also want a to-don't list, which is a list of things to avoid while working, which might include social media during certain projects.
2: Working in athleisure, also known as sweatpants.
0: Oh, of course you should do it. You should work in whatever outfit is comfortable as long as it's not wildly unprofessional.
1: <laughs> okay, and then the last one is procrastinating.
0: Oh, I have such a mixed relationship with this topic. I'm ambivalent. I think for most people, the goal is to procrastinate less. I have found, as uh, as I have covered in some of my past work, some evidence that a little bit of procrastination, if you're intrinsically motivated or if you're working on a creative problem, can help you generate more original ideas. And that's not to say any of us should procrastinate more. It is to say that sometimes... You don't want to rush ahead with your first ideas. You want to wait for your best ideas.
2: Mm.
1: I'll take that as a positive that I'm a great procrastinator. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Adam, thank you so much for being here today. I certainly learned a lot of new things. If we want to hear more from you, where can we find you?
0: Uh, It's kind of you to ask, Britt. Uh, I guess I would start by going to my podcast, Work Life. Uh, It's a TED podcast. It's called Work Life with Adam Grant. I guess that's me. And it's all about the science of making work not suck, going into more depth on topics like we discussed today. And then I do a monthly newsletter, uh, which is free, called Granted, where I share some of my favorite new findings around work and psychology.
1: And where can they sign up for that?
0: Oh, it said adamgrant.net. Clever, right?
1: Oh, I like the .net. That's very clever. Very trendy. Well, for everyone out there, I know this is a hard time. Um, I hope you will find this inspiring on some level. Um, However, you want to be more productive or not is your choice right now. And um, we are here for you. And again, Adam, thank you so much.
0: Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co., I'm your host, Britt Morin. Send us your feedback and find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media at Brit and at Brit Co. A special shout out to my two co-hosts, Ange, who you can find on Instagram, at Angelica Temple. And of course, my husband and partner in everything, Dave Morin. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Christine Swore and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Aaron Kaufman. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next time.